Well, take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 12. We, can, we return to John chapter 12 after taking a brief reprieve last week for our missions conference. And let me just say before we get into it, a big thank you to you for the way in which you engaged with the world partners we had here during our missions conference. But beyond that, how you have committed to seeing the global evangelization of the world through gospel proclamations and missions. I constantly stand amazed at how this small to mid-sized church is making a mega church impact in the world through our commitment through our global partners here locally and globally. Uh, so let me take you back to two weeks ago, John chapter 12, before our missions conference. We were right here in John 12. We had walked through uh, with Jesus at the beginning of this chapter, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where again he rode in on Palm Sunday on the back of that foal of a donkey to the acclaim and the shouts of the people, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And that shouting from the peoples fully incensed the religious leaders. It angered them. It got all over them. In fact, they told Jesus, would you tell your disciples to please be quiet? Stop yelling. And what did Jesus say? I tell you, if they did not cry out, even the rocks would cry out. Well, this act, again, completely incensed them, and they knew they couldn't wait any longer. It was now, it was time to execute their murderous plot against the Lord. Now, there were some who had pilgrimaged into Jerusalem, some Greeks and some non-Jews. These were God-fearers. These were, were people who respected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they had come ostensibly to worship. Now, as I mentioned before, the name of Jesus was on everybody's mind and on everybody's lips. He was the hullabaloo around town. Is Jesus going to show up? Is he going to make an entrance? Is he going to come into the temple? Is he going to reveal himself here? Is he going to be the Messiah revealed? And so some of these Greeks, curious about Jesus, actually came to try to get an audience with him. They came to one of his Greek-named disciples, Philip, and said, hey, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus, or excuse me, Philip took them to Andrew, and Andrew brought them to Jesus. And notice Jesus' curious response to these non-Jews wanting to have an audience with him. Look at John 12, 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Not welcome, I'm glad you're here. What do you want to know? What questions do you have for me? He answered them as they came to have an audience with Jesus, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, two weeks ago, I pointed out that throughout John's gospel, Jesus has been saying, my hour is not yet come. My hour has not yet arrived. But we get to John 12, and for the first time to these Greeks, these non-Jews, he says, the hour has come. My time is here. It has arrived. Now, by hour, he doesn't mean a literal 60-minute interval of time. He means the moment. It's here. It's D-Day. The apex of everything Christ would accomplish has arrived. What is the apex of Jesus' work and ministry? One word, glory. It's glory. God is all about his glory. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come 
the apex of my ministry for the Son of Man to be glorified. Again, I told you two weeks ago, the way in which Jesus would be glorified would not be through a means we might anticipate or expect. It would be through the cross. His glory would be in the cross. We know this because the very next verse, verse 24, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What he's saying is the way in which my glory is going to expand, the way in which my glory is going to be known is through my death. And if I die, I will bear much fruit. And so again, I told you two weeks ago, come back in two weeks because I'm going to explain how there is great glory in the cross of Jesus. And that's the title of my message, The Glory of the Cross. So let's look at our focal passage. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 36. This is the inspired word of God. Jesus speaking says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. The hour has come. The time has arrived. It's D-Day for Jesus. The mission is now. Why? Because the cross is upon him. The gospel of John has been moving towards this climax for the entire gospel account. It has now reached the apex of it. And over the last couple of chapters, we've even seen the temperature has been increasing steadily upon Jesus. The opposition to Christ has now reached a fevered pitch, and it's all leading to his death on the cross. You know, this is not how most biographies go. Most biographies, the apex, the climax of a person of great consequence, their life is not their death. It's something they've accomplished in their life. That's usually the apex of their influence in the world. You think of Abraham Lincoln. His great influence and impact on history was not the fact that he was shot in a theater. The great impact he made was maybe the Gettysburg Address or maybe his signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. You think of Winston Churchill, who led Britain during the onslaught of tyranny from Nazi Germany. Beginning of 1940, he spoke to the British Parliament, and he says, never on the field 
of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. This is a man of great consequence in history. Or you think of Martin Luther King and the great I Have a Dream speech he gave on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Typically biographies that are given that of, of people that have great worldly influence and impact. It's something they did in their lives, not their death. But friends, the apex of Jesus' life is his death. It's the cross that is the climax of all he would accomplish. And this is why John records in verse 27 his personal disposition to what's ahead. What does he say? He says, now my soul, that's the word psuche, from which we get psychology, the innermost part of his being, now my psuche, my soul, is troubled. That word for trouble doesn't just mean he's a little agitated, he's fretful, he's just chewing his fingernails. No, it means to be struck with dread and fear in your spirit. Jesus is deeply troubled because what he is about to experience is the greatest pain and suffering that any human has ever experienced in the history of the planet. As a man, he could experience it all, As God, he had supernatural insight as to what exactly would take place on the cross. And because of that supernatural insight, he says, now is my soul troubled. But in saying this, he's not asking to be relieved from the task. No, just the opposite. He clearly says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Dying on the cross was the very purpose for which Jesus came. But why? Why did Jesus die on the cross? That's a question I often ask children whenever I have a baptism counseling session with them. I want to know about their faith and their understanding of the gospel, and I'll simply ask the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? And 99.9% of the time, children will respond, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's exactly right. A plus, 100%. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But then I'll ask some probing questions. Do you understand exactly what that means? What does the fact that he substituted himself for us mean? What does it mean that he died in our place? What does genuine faith in his substitution look like and feel like? Do you believe like you believe like you believe in that substitutionary death? So yes, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But the overarching purpose for why Jesus died on the cross for our sins is the glory of God. He died so that God would get great glory. And that's what we see exactly from this passage. That's what he manifestly pronounces from the cross, the glory of God. And so then as we read in verse 28, the Father speaks from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This is now the third time the gospel writers record when God the Father spoke with a voice from heaven over the Son. Do you remember the other two occasions? What's your wager? Dun, 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 dun. Right? First one was at his baptism. He's baptized by John the Baptist, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The second one was, anybody know? His transfiguration, right? So there are a couple of disciples, three of them actually, 
went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and there they hear the voice of God speak over his son. And now finally here, just hours before the cross, again the voice of God thunders from heaven. But what is the connection between these three moments when Jesus is spoken over by the Father. What do they have in common? You may think, well, maybe he's just marking the chronology, the beginning of his ministry and the baptism, the middle of his ministry at the transfiguration, and then here at the end before the cross. Maybe, but I think it's more intentional than that. In each of these instances, the true nature and identity of Jesus is being authenticated to those who are around. Behold, my son, my beloved son, The nature of Christ at his baptism is being authenticated. There before those few disciples who saw the full and resplendent glory of Jesus seep through his veiled flesh and to come out and he was transfigured before them. They saw, oh, this is God. (laughs) And now here before the cross, the identity and the person of Jesus is made certain as the pulling back, as it were, of the veil of heaven and the Father speaks and authenticates the Son. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The glory of God will be revealed through the cross of Jesus. Now, if you think about that statement I just made, it's something of an oxymoron. We're used to crosses. We're familiar with crosses. We've got about 50 crosses just in this building. And so we can thank the glory of the cross, yes, but you got to think in those terms and in those days. It'd be like saying the glory of the lethal injection, the glory of the electric chair, the glory of the firing squad or the hangman's noose. It's not the cross as an instrument of execution that is glorious. It's what was accomplished on that cross that is glorious. A cross is not glorious. A cross is shameful. A cross is reprehensible. A cross is detestable. But what's glorious about the cross is what would transpire because of Jesus's obedience to the Father on the cross. Why is Jesus's cross glorious? I'm glad you asked. Got three answers from the passage we just read. The first thing we see about the glory of the cross is we see the wrath-assuaging sacrifice. The wrath-assuaging sacrifice. On the cross of Jesus, he assuaged the wrath of God justly intended for you. That's profound. That word assuage, we don't use it very often. It means to absorb, to placate, to appease, even to satisfy. The wrath-satisfying sacrifice of Jesus. And friends, that's absolutely glorious that that was accomplished on the cross. Look again at the beginning of verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. We've already talked about this concept of the hour has come. The hour is here. My hour has arrived. And Jesus says in verse 31, now at this point is the judgment of of the world. Now, we often think of the judgment of the world as being this far and away distant future event, the day of judgment. 
when all people will stand in the courtroom of God and they will stand at the judgment seat and they will be judged. There is a judgment day coming, make no mistake about it. In fact, Jesus affirmed there will be a final judgment for every human being that's ever existed. Notice how he put it in John 5, the same gospel. Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Every human being, not just Christians, not just believers, every human being will be resurrected from the dead at the voice of the Son of God, and they will stand before the judgment seat. There is a judgment day coming, and there will be a dividing of the good and the evil. There will be a dividing and a separating of the sheep from the goats. So what is the line of demarcation? Who goes on which side or the other? Well, Jesus also says in John 5 how you can know. In John 5, 24, he says, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, those who trust in Jesus, those who have placed their faith in Christ to reconcile them to God, they do not come into judgment, but they have passed from death to life. They do not have the condemned state upon them anymore. So the question is, when did that judgment come down? When was that judgment executed? Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now, friends, the death of Jesus on the cross becomes the decisive dividing line between those who will be declared innocent on judgment day and those who will be declared guilty. Friends, every single one of us will stand before God and give an account. And you will be asked, why should I let you into my heaven? If you stand there twiddling your thumbs or if you give some of works-based answer, well, I think you should let me into heaven, God, because, well, I've not done anything really that bad. I've been a pretty good person. I mean, I never killed anybody. I never, you know, broke the speed limit that much. Surely you should let me into heaven. He will say, condemned. But if on that day you say, I have nothing to give you except Jesus took my place, he will say, innocent. You live. This is the line. That's why Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death because Christ has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do because God has sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He assuaged the wrath of of God that you justly deserve. This is glorious. In fact, notice how Paul put it in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, hanged on a cross. I know many of you have been reading this devotional that we put out 30 days ago called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. Our family's been reading it every morning uh, as we head towards Good Friday. This Good Friday, we'll have a Good Friday service here as we remember and reflect on the work of Jesus on the cross. But uh, in this book by Piper, he gives 
really insight into each of these three, three things we'll see in the passage before us today. And so I'm going to read an excerpt from this book on each of these three quotes or three points. The first one is right here from the very first day of the devotional, day one. Look what Piper writes at the conclusion of day one. Jesus came to die, he says, to absorb the wrath of God. Here's what he writes, quote, We will never stand in awe of being loved by God until we reckon with the seriousness of our sin and the justice of his wrath against us. But when, by grace, we waken to our unworthiness, then we may look at the suffering and death of Christ and say, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath-absorbing propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10. This is glorious. That Christ absorbed, as Piper says. He assuaged, as Troy says, the wrath of God intended for us. Now, earlier I said, and you may have picked up on it, that what Jesus experienced on the cross was the most intense pain any human has ever experienced in the history of the planet. But I'm not talking about the physical pain, though that was intense. I'm not only talking about the beating he took from the Roman soldiers, from the cat of nine tails. I'm not talking only about the crown of thorns being impaled on his head or being made to walk and carry that instrument of execution up the hill or being impaled to the cross with those spikes. That was certainly physically painful. But here's the deal. Uh, there have been many martyrs for Christ throughout the eons of church history who have experienced greater physical suffering than that, who have been tortured longer than that. Now, the reason why Jesus experienced the greatest pain in human history is not just the physical pain, but because on that cross, he took the punishment, the wrath of God for you. We can't comprehend the depth of that pain. But yet Christ endured it. He knows the pain that's coming. Why? Because he chose the pain that's coming. The glory of the cross is seen in the wrath, assuaging sacrifice of Jesus. Here's the second glorious thing about the cross. Number two, the wicked one being defeated. The wicked one being defeated. When we talked about Jesus taking the judgment of the world, he said, now is the judgment of this world. But look at the end of verse 31. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? Who is the ruler of this world? Who is the ruler of this world? Satan, the devil. Oh, there's lots of people who think they're ruling the world. Everybody wants to rule the world. It's been sung. But there is one ruler of this world. His name is Satan. Paul said in Ephesians 2 that he is the prince and the power of the air. He is the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And John, who wrote this gospel in his first epistle, look what he says in John, 1 John chapter 5, 19. He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So in case you didn't know, the ruler of this world 
and the ruler of all the systems of this world is Satan. Satan rules all the government systems. Can I get an amen? Satan rules all of the economic systems of this world. Satan rules all of the educational systems of this world. Satan rules all of the social systems of this world. Satan rules all of the man-made religious systems of this world. He rules this world. I mean, Ephesians 6 tells us, however, that we're still to put on the armor of God. But Jesus says, now is the ruler of this world going to be cast out. Wait a second. There's a contradiction here, Jesus. First you tell us the ruler of this world is going to be cast out, but we just admitted he's ruling He's still controlling. He's still manipulating. He's still very active in this world. But Jesus says when he dies, the the ruler of this world will be cast out. So what does this mean? One of the primary ways Satan works against us and against all human beings is through deception and through accusation. He's an accuser. You ever been accused by the evil one? Sure. You may not have recognized it was the evil one who was accusing you, but in that guilty conscience, in that heart that condemns the evil one. And you see, when Jesus died on the cross, he took the penalty for our sin. He disarmed Satan with that weapon. And the penalty that our sin deserves is separation from God. It deserves eternal torment. It deserves a guilty conscience. And so Jesus, when he died on the cross, he stripped away from Satan's arsenal all that would condemn us. He stripped away that one weapon of accusation and condemnation that would damn us to hell. He removed it. So every time Satan accuses you, Christian, before the throne of God, all God has to do is say, look at the cross. That weapon's gone. That weapon is removed. It's stripped from the arsenal. I love the way Paul described it in Colossians 2. Look how he put it. He says, he, Jesus, canceled, canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So how is the ruler of this world cast out? Like this, he's cast out of the courtroom of God. I want you to think of Satan like a prosecuting attorney, and you're on the trial of your life. And here comes the prosecutor with his briefcase with all of the collated and curated evidence against you. He opens it up expecting to see file upon file, folder upon folder that is sure, incontributable, conclusive evidence. You're guilty. He opens it up, and the briefcase is empty. And the prosecutor says, oh, where's all my evidence? Satan, our, ad, our prosecutor, looks to Jesus, our advocate, and the advocate says, uh, did you forget I nailed all that evidence to the cross? That entire record of debt, all that conclusive evidence you had against my child, I've nailed it to the cross forever and always. The accuser of the brethren has been cast out. But here's the dilemma. He's still active. He's still working. He's still deceiving. He's still accusing. How how is that possible? 
When I was 24 years old, I'm 54, so 30 years ago, my dad purchased a 150-acre farm in South Georgia, and he moved myself, my wife, and my six-week-old daughter, Aubrey, to South Georgia to manage this farm. It was a shut-down hog farm, empty, vacant, and we added 3,000 animals to this farm, and we moved there to manage it. Now, 40 acres of this 150-acre farm was swamp. And if you know anything about South Georgia swampland, you know it is heavily populated by this one species, the cottonmouth snake. And so there are cottonmouth snakes all over this farm. Every time I'm walking along, I'm always readily aware I could be walking up on a cottonmouth snake. If I'm walking through tall weeds, I knew to look out for these cottonmouths, otherwise known as water moccasins. Uh, if I had to pick up a piece of tin, I picked it up very gingerly because there was likely going to be a moccasin underneath that piece of tin. On one particular day, I was working in, a, in, in one of the finishing barns, and I go to the back of the barn and open the back door to walk out, and there on the concrete pad is a moccasin who's just sunning out on that concrete pad. So I slowly close the door, and I walk, and I go get a shovel. I come back with that shovel, and I slowly open the door again, and there he's still in the same location, and I pick up that shovel, and in one fell swoop, I took off the head of that snake. He was dismembered, decapitated. I asked my staff if it's okay to show this picture. They all agreed, yes, you can look at it. So blame them if you can't see this picture. Now, I had always heard that a venomous snake can still strike even after it's been decapitated. So as a 24-year-old dude, I want to find out. So I get a stick, and I come over to this dismembered head, and I start to tap that snake head on the nose. As I tap it the first time, guess what it did? And the fangs came out. I go, whoa, I guess it's not an old wives' tale. Don't tell my dad, but for the next 15 minutes, I didn't do any work. <laughs> I'm just sitting there tapping this snake head. How long is this thing going to have these reflexes to respond with a strike and show me its fangs? Almost 15 minutes. Finally, I'm tapping it. No response. I'm like, okay, he did. He did now. But he still had the capacity, even after he was beheaded, to inflict damage. Friends, Satan is defeated. He is a decapitated serpent. But he still has the capacity to inflict damage. I love the way Piper put it in day 42 of his devotional regarding the demonic forces and the defeat Jesus has accomplished on them. Notice what Piper writes. He says, not that they were put out of existence. We wrestle with them even now, but they are a defeated foe. We know we have the final victory. It is as though a great dragon has had his head cut off and is thrashing about until he bleeds to death. The battle is won, but we must still be careful to the damage he can do. And what is so incredible and fantastic about this moment at the cross when the serpent was beheaded is that Satan thought he was winning. I've finally done it! The Son of God is hanging on a Roman cross! Demons, rejoice! God is dead. Little did he know, at that very instant, the snake head was cut off. Only God could do that. All glory to God.
Isn't the cross of Jesus glorious? It is glorious because the wrath that we deserve was assuaged by Jesus. It is glorious because the wicked one who would deceive and kill and steal and destroy has been killed himself and defeated. But thirdly, we see the glory of the cross through the winning of the nations. Through the winning of the nations. Look again at verse 32. And I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is speaking here both literally and metaphorically. Literally, he's talking about the fact that he will be lifted up on a cross. Jesus knew full well the way I'm going to die is through crucifixion by Roman centurions and guards. He knew full well that he would carry that crossbeam, the instrument of his own execution, up that hill to Golgotha, and they, they would impale him on that piece of wood. They would attach that wood to a post. They would nail his feet to that post. They would lift it up high in the air and drop it with a thud into that hole. He knew that he would be hanging literally between heaven and earth. He says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. In fact, look at verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So literally, he's talking about his crucifixion. But he's also speaking metaphorically here. Because when he is lifted up in glory of the cross, he will draw all people to himself. Why will Jesus being lifted up on the cross draw people to him? Is a beaten, bloodied, naked man hanging on a cross of wood attractive to us? Is it appealing? Do we look at it and say, oh, let's look more at that? No, just the opposite. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, speaking forth hundreds of years before it happened, talked about how people would view physically, personally, the cross of Jesus. Look what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 3. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. If you were in Jerusalem in AD 33, and you heard, hey, the Romans just crucified someone else, you would take a different route home. You don't want to see it. Men hide their faces from the repulsiveness of that agony. But Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. How is this? It's not drawing people because it's somehow compelling or it's, he's got some kind of personal magnetism where we're naturally attracted to an executed criminal dying in agony. And it's not drawing by enticing or wooing An executed criminal is not enticing. So what does Jesus mean that he will draw all people to himself if he's executed on a cross? We've seen this word draw already in our study in John's gospel. This word is only used eight times in the entire New Testament. The first time it's used is in John chapter 6. Back in September, I preached a message entitled, Eating is Believing. That's when Jesus gave the first of the seven I am statements, I am the bread of life. Before he spoke it like that, he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. It was revealing his origin. I'm not from this world. 
I came down from heaven. And as we might expect, the religious uppity-ups got all been out of shape over Jesus saying he was from heaven. And he says, what do you mean you come from heaven? You're from Nazareth. You're Joseph's boy. You came from the carpenter's shop. We know where you're from. They grumbled. Notice what Jesus said and responded to their grumbling in verse 43 and 44 of John 6. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, this word draw is used eight times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, what it refers to is something being pulled against a weight or against attention or against the will. This drawing is like drawing water out of a well. There is great pressure, and you've dipped the bucket, and you're drawing the water up. This is not enticing. This is not wooing. This is not attracting your personal magnetism. This is drawing against great tension. Every single human has a bent away from God. Every single human has a bent towards sinfulness. Every single human being is totally depraved. And the only way, the only way you will ever embrace Jesus is if the Father who sent him draws you. He pulls against your depravity. He draws against your will. If he didn't do that, none of us would ever believe because we're not naturally attracted to someone hanging on a cross. We're repulsed by it. One is whom men hide their faces. So there is glory here in the cross in the sense, one, he does all the work. He does the saving power of salvation. But there is great drawing here and glory here because Jesus says, I will draw all men unto myself. Now, this is not universal uh, salvation. Everybody eventually gets saved. He means all kinds of people, all types of people. Here he is saying this in Jerusalem during a Jewish feast when some Greeks had just come to him to inquire of him, and he says, I will draw all people, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. I will draw all nations Every people, every tribe, every tongue, every language will be gathered around the throne. In other words, the work of the cross is going global. It wasn't just going to stay local in Jerusalem. It's going global. And friends, that's glorious. That's glorious. And that is why we must commit our lives to the unfinished task of taking the message of the cross to the ends of the earth. In fact, notice as we can move to a conclusion how John Piper puts it in number 45 of this devotional book. Hope you read it. He says this, Christ died to save a great diversity of peoples. Sin is no respecter of cultures. All peoples have sinned. Every race and culture needs to be reconciled to God. As the disease of sin is global, so the remedy is global. Jesus saw the agony of the cross coming and spoke boldly about the scope of his purpose. Quote, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John 12, 32. 
as he planned his death, he embraced the world. Glory. Glory. And we know, as we take this message of the cross to all nations, we will be 100% successful. You know why? Because it's not our job to draw people to salvation. It's simply our job to tell. And every time you speak the name of Jesus, every time you tell the gospel, it's 100% successful because that's your job. Convincing and convicting people of sin, that ain't your job. That's what Jesus does. We simply tell. And that's really how this section concludes. Notice as we close verse 36, Jesus says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Here's where this all becomes very personal for us. God's glory is revealed for us to cherish as our greatest treasure, and God's glory is revealed to us. How so? Let's review. First of all, God's glory is revealed in the cross through the wrath-assuaging death of Jesus. He took your punishment in your place. Secondly, the cross of Jesus is glorious because the serpent was beheaded at the cross. Because at the cross, Satan is defeated. He is cast out of this world. That's glorious. But finally, the cross of Jesus is glorious because at the cross of Jesus, we have the guarantee of the homecoming of all the redeemed through all the millennia in all the nations. I will draw all people to myself. So I've got a couple application questions for you. The first application question is this. Have you trusted in this Jesus? Have you believed in this Jesus? You may know the Sunday school answer, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Have you placed your faith in that? Do you believe that? Do you depend upon that? If you have, Jesus says here in verse 36, you have become a son, a daughter of light. Here's the second question. You know, this week, we have a unique opportunity. And my question is simply this. Will you shine the light? Will you shine the light as a son or daughter of light? What are you going to do with the light that you've been given? Hide it under a bushel? Hide it under a bushel? Let's try one more time. Hide it under a bushel? I'm going to let it shine. We're going to shine the light. We're not going to hide it. Again, this week before Easter, we have a unique opportunity because it's at Easter that uh, one of the times when people who are non-believers are most ready and willing to respond to an invitation from you to join you at church. Easter is one season, one time when people will come to church when they may not normally come. And I can guarantee you, just like this Sunday and last Sunday and the Sunday before that, next Sunday on Easter, I'm going to preach the gospel. And they're going to hear the gospel of Jesus. And so you've got a, two really ways that we've provided for you to do that. One, we've made a video. The servant I'm preaching next week is going to ask this question. Go to the next slide for me, Eli. The question is, what if the resurrection is true? That's the title of my sermon. What if the resurrection is true? What does that mean? So we've created two ways for you to invite people. The first one is really low, low impact. We've created a, a video that is on social media. All you have to do is click share. Isn't that easy? 
And all of your social media friends and followers can see that invitation to come. Um, so whether you're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, we didn't do TikTok because we don't want the Chinese communists to know what we're doing, but, but we did the other three. Um, you can share that video on social media. Low impact. Here's a second way. Look in your bulletin. There is an uh, invitation card that looks like this. It has the title of the message for next Sunday. And on the back, it just says all the information, when we're going to be meeting, our children's egg hunt, our uh, elementary egg hunt. Um, who's somebody, maybe you prayed for them at our prayer time, that you wept over? This person's lost. This person, I, I weep over their lostness, that they're blinded to the truth of the gospel. Could you take this to them? We printed up about 600. There's some in the foyer. There's some here on the front pew. I hope we run out today. Could you take a handful? Maybe you want to go to the parking lot at Walmart. I don't know if that's legal or not, but put it in every windshield. Your pastor didn't tell you to do that, but if you want to, I'll print up some more for you, okay? Um, your server at lunch today, your coworker, your neighbor across the street, just simply a personal invitation. We are, have been given the light, and we've been called to shine that light. And this is a very practical and simple way we can do that. And we are trusting Christ to do then his part. What is that? If I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. We do our part and shine the light. Christ does his part. And that leads to my last thought. For all believers in Jesus, the glory of the cross has been displayed to us and should be displayed through us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.